Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my spectres of the night, my devils in the dark, and my enigmatic enigmas of darkness. I bring you three tales today for your disturbed pleasures. Your first tale is straight from the Library of Shadows, written by Weird Bryce Guy. I bring you The Lord of the Black Carol, a tale of Lovecraftian proportions. Your second tale, Becoming a Demon by Raedra. And lastly, your tale is Arizona, a story about a cursed petrol station that drives those to visits to madness. So it seems. Before we start, I must thank my Creepalicious Patreon supporters that inject this podcast's veins with the darkest of blood. My old night tea titans, Matthew J. Bauer, controller of the insidious fog. One look into the black mass of stars and midnight swirling masses is enough to drive any human insane. The insidious fog draws its victims in, ramps his vaporous tendrils around the body, and on contact, they are transfigured, molded, into the mass of fog they so wanted to learn more about. The rolling fog at night carries with it a warning. Should the night sky be at your feet, wonder not why it is so, but that it must not be so, and that you must run. Maya, keeper of Stygian dust, there are not many who can say, whilst alive, that they hold Stygian dust in their hands. A mere touch of this material seeps into the pores and buries itself into the host, rotting, eating, and consuming one from the inside till they are all but energy. Maya, however, exposed to the dust as a child, has harnessed this power, learned to control it. She may not be the master, but neither is the dust that would otherwise consume her. And with such control comes great power. Creating wells of darkness, transporting her across planes and universes one could only dream of. For some it's a curse of doom, but for Maya, a gate into the unknown. Thank you both for being epic and supporting me. I've been flexing some more of my filter's metal today, and I've applied a new filter to my voice. This is an enhancement plugin to one of the old ones, and thanks to you, I've been able to purchase it. Again, you both rock. I own cows, owner of the haunted hooves. There is a motel in this world who lures people to spend time there, drawing from those that enter without their knowledge, their life essence, their dreams, and their personalities. Haunted Hoof Motel is a house of many doors and many fashions, whilst in reality, should you step past the visage of that hotel, there is but one room. Iron Cows is said to reside there, a mysterious maze of haunted, reality-defying rooms that should you wander into, will never let you leave. Lee Bauer, the Wanderer. Every step the Wanderer takes leaves behind it a puddle of distorted time. 
it is said in each puddle contains new lives, new worlds, and new entities that have yet to travel into other worlds. The Wanderer travels in our planes of existence to only show the ways for others, crafting pathways in and out of reality into universes unknown. Would you, dear walk, in the footsteps of the Wanderer yourself? Perhaps a question that warrants no answer. Solstra the Weaver Solstra is the creator and master crafter of the Cloak of a Thousand Stars. To don this cloak is to immerse oneself in a communication with the cosmos. Legends tell that wearing this cloak provides the user access to realms on the brink of annihilation. The ability to converse with entities that live in planescapes unknown to humanity and allows one to witness the birth of new timelines that have yet to be created. The Cloak of a Thousand Stars is a wonder, and those that own it reap rewards totally unknown to humanity, and forever changes those that wear it. A unique cloak that is just as unique as the owner. Thank all of you for your support. Every episode is just that bit better, and that's all thanks to you mates. And lastly, but not least, my Earl Grain forces. Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Lorraine Grisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Thank all of you for your support. Now turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready for something unique. The Lord of Black Carol. The following is a report of the murder of Eric Maxwell. Footage recovered from an entryway security camera coincides with the notes of the case's lead investigator. The accounts have been compiled into this report. The corpse was found by his mother, Adelaine, and his sister Eleanor sprawled in a presumably painful contortion. Had he been alive to experience it, and dressed in an attire suggesting attendance to some formal event, his disheveled hair retained the remnants of the previous night's rain, and the unnervingly bemused face implied a moment of confusion had immediately preceded his sudden death. His once vibrant blue eyes were fixed in a deadened stare of fear-laced confusion at the ceiling, though if he were upright, would have been focused on something at eye level. The most curious aspect of the scene was the state of his hands. The fingers of both were splayed, impossibly so for any human to consciously widen, with the palms bored through by some unknown penetrative object. There was no blood, neither on his hands nor on the floor, and no signs of cauterization or visible means of congestion. His body had been checked for drainage and the fluids still sloshed viciously about inside, cold and without flow. Whatever had pierced his palms, had managed to do so while keeping his blood suspended around the wounds and had apparently kept it there for hours after his expiration. At around 4am, approximately 6 hours after his believed demise, his mother and sister entered his home with the key that had been provided to them by the departed. There, at the landing of the stairs directly across from the front door reclined the corpse of their beloved son, Eric. His home had been ransacked, though none of his known valuable possessions were found to be missing. The dining room, to the left of the entrance, was the only room left, mostly untarnished. 
A message written in a vicious red substance that has yet to be identified at the time of this log relayed an insulting remark across the length of Eric's dining table. The disparagement, curiously, did not seem to be aimed at Eric, but at whoever discovered the body, in this case being the only two women of note in his life and the subsequently arrived officers. It read, You won't get out. You won't get out once you see him. You'll rot there next to your beloved. He called out your name when he died. He doomed you to my servitude. You'll sing along, all right. You all will. In time. Eric's mother had attempted to wash off the upsetting message in futility. Unfortunately for her, but to the luck of the investigators, because the lettering had been done in a style, presumably unique to the author, that could lead to potential comparison and possibly even capture, if the perpetrator held a criminal record. End of report. Shiloh Nudd, lead forensic investigator. The grasp of dawn inched closer, illuminating the floor and stopping hungrily at the hem of Eric's pants. Nearly finished with their record of the scene, the investigators had the woman attest to their statement one last time, and then began packing up their equipment. Office of counsel and travel assistance were spoken and dismissed, and the officers allowed the modern ferryman of the dead to collect the corpse for transportation to the morgue. Identification of the corpse during autopsy was unnecessary, considering the circumstances, so Adelaine and Eleanor simply sat on the front porch of their departed son's home and wept together, embraced in a clumsy hug of shared bereavement. Just a few minutes after the last of the authorities had departed, and only audible enough for anyone on the porch to hear, a voice called from within the home, in the same tonality as that of their recently departed relative. A cascading wave of emotions swept through each woman, puzzlement, felicity, and ultimately, fear. Rising in volume, the dead man's voice resonated with a harmonic liveliness that he had barely been able to reach in life. A beautiful song persisted despite the status of its creator, and after several seconds of transfixion, by uncertainty and fear, the woman rose to their feet and faced the door, determined to witness the apparent resuscitation of their beloved boy. The mother opened the door, preferring to enter first and potentially shield her daughter if the chorale exaltations of renewed life had been a depraved trick of some kind. Her son had been taken away, and while a part of her would have welcomed without question the return of her son, as if by providence, she also feared seeing his corpse yet again on the floor, singing with airless lungs some hymn of the tomb. Her fears of the latter were confirmed, and a deeper, graver dread blossomed from a primal intuition long forgotten by humanity. Lulled and inanimate, still dead, was her son, but above him, three steps up the carpeted stairs, stood a figure bearing what she knew to be the same proportional outline of her son's figure. Aside from the exact bodily measurements, there was nothing on the figure's image that imparted any true sense of identification. A blackness constituted the duplicate, a Stygian suit that seemed to banish light and even distort visual perception, making it impossible to focus her eyes on it. 
immobile yet clearly in a state parallel to what humans call life, the Ebon entity belted out a rapturous song that only intensified her horror. A harmonic yet less skillful accompaniment erupted from behind her, crescendoing along with the undulating notes of the black entity. Her daughter, her Eleanor, had joined the doppelganger in a chorus of near-sickening joviality. Petrified, Adelaine watched as her daughter approached the creature whose hands rose to take hers. Eleanor took the extended hand and was immediately afflicted with the captivation of the body that suggested light electrocution, although her expression suggested an orgasmic disposition. She then fell to the floor, sprawled next to the corpse of her brother, face frozen in a contortion of sublime satisfaction and, just underneath, deep confusion. An expression not dissimilar to that of her deceased sibling. Adeline, almost completely unhinged by the morbid sauricide, cried out an indiscernible protest. At the death of Eleanor, the carol rose again in volume, peaking to a majestically sonorous resonance that bombarded Adeline's eardrums with deafening power. She collapsed to the floor, now only feeling the vibrations of the sound, no longer possessing a scent of hearing. She tried putting her hands to her head to abate the besieging sound, but alas, the waves tore through her hands, funneling through the newly forged apertures and into her skull. Holding a grandeur of performance that should shame the most renowned operatic vocalists, the shadow of her son blasted the skin and underlying tissue from Adeline's skeleton with a destructive sonic blitz. Agonized yet still alive, and unwilling to withstand the assault any longer. Adeline allowed her mind to detach from the tethering of her corporal form. At this acquiescence, the demonian being's recital washed away the onerous burden of human existence and transfigured her into a purely spectral being. To Adeline, at that moment, human life seemed to have been a prolonged cataclysm and her acoustic transformation had been her passage into some sublime eschaton. She became one with the clangor, joined the oral entity in phantasmal fusion, supplementing its power with her spirit. Elsewhere amidst a black, awesome gulf well beyond sidereal space, she heard what could have been millions, perhaps even billions of voices singing joyfully. A capella and without anything else to do, she joined the choir, empowering the Lord of Black Carol. Becoming a Demon He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even unto now. 1 John 2.9 King James Version As part of my research for my comic books, I regularly visit a website dedicated to chronicling various superpowers. Powers range from the awesome, such as flying via jet propulsion, to the terrifying, such as turning into a swarm of spiders, to the absurd, such as transforming into a living spoon. The numerous powers are sorted into a number of categories, as healing powers, combat powers, and elemental manipulation. There's even a category called real powers, 
which has powers and abilities that are more likely to appear in real life or are very close to abilities existing in nature. One day, while searching the site, I found the article for a power called Demonization, which was the ability to turn others into demons. I sadly reflected that demonization is something which has happened to people in real life. You may laugh derisively at the comment and think, Oh what? You think some infernal being can appear from the underworld and shine some sinister ray at someone, and they'll grow horns and cloven hooves and be transformed into some fiendish monster? No, not at all. I'm not talking about something you might see in some comic book. I'm referring to something more horrible. And which is all too common. The process starts when someone develops a strong and irrational antagonism towards a certain group of people. It could be based on past wrongs committed by members of that group. It could be based on exaggerated and distorted, if not completely made up history. Or it could be for no real reason at all. People talk about conflicts arising between people of different belief systems, religions, philosophies, political parties, economic systems, etc. Races, ethnicities, nationalities, and the like. But while such conflicts have been common, it is foolish, even delusional, to assume those are the only causes of conflict. If there were only one belief system, one race, one nationality, etc. in this world, people would still find reasons to hate. It has been said that you don't need a reason to love someone, you only need a reason to hate someone. This is true. But sadly, some people will find any excuse to hate others. There are people who will hate others for their dwelling places, their diets, their musical tastes, the sports team they follow, anything. Keep in mind that the most notorious feud in the history of the United States, one that spanned decades and caused so much death and sorrow, was caused by a dispute over a hog. There was even a case in England in which one man fatally injured another because a voice in his head told him to injure people who whistled. Whatever the reason, someone comes to hate anyone belonging to a certain group. They start off making derogatory comments and then, as their hatred festers, they begin thinking and even vocalizing vicious and destructive comments. Things would be better off if they weren't around. They always ruin everything. The world would be a better place if someone got rid of them. If they allow their hatred to grow and fester, their thinking gradually becomes more warped and vile. They become delusional and begin promoting any lie that advocates their viewpoint, no matter how false or cruel. It gets to the point that they fail to see members of that group as human. Not only can they not show any warmth or decency to them, but they take delight in their suffering. Hearing news about members of that group suffering, whether it's a family losing their house in a disaster, or someone getting brutally attacked or murdered, elicits amusement and a self-righteous declaration of, they got what they deserved, or that'll show them, rather than the human sympathy such tragedies should elicit. Eventually, they decide such passive antagonisms isn't enough, and they feel justified in committing cruel acts against the targets of their hatred. Threats and calls to eliminate members of that group escalate into violence, beatings, killings, the burning down of occupied houses, torture, dismemberment, rape, depravity. Nothing is considered off-limits since they no longer see their targets as human. No target is too young or too weak for them to commit atrocities against. These fiends, 
which were once human, now have the hearts of demons, and they think only to dehumanize, to kill, and to destroy. They have sacrificed their humanity in dedication to the persecution of those they view as something other than human. Sadly, it doesn't end there. Members of the targeted group develop hatred for members of whichever group commits these atrocities against them. They come to hate and dehumanize the entire group for the actions of a few. This becomes reflected in their thoughts and speech. Things would be better if they weren't here. They always try to ruin everything. The world would be a better place if someone got rid of them. Filled with rage against their oppressors, and feeling more and more that any action is justified against them. They too develop the hearts of demons, losing their humanity in the face of those who view them as something less than human. Those who have become demons thus turn others into demons as well. The good news is that this process can be stopped by consciously choosing to retain one's humanity and to see the humaneness of others. It can be reversed by turning from the trodden path of hatred and making a conscious effort to rediscover one's humanity while rejecting delusions and recognizing the humanity of others. One must always choose to retain and recognize humanity. Doing otherwise results only in the condemnation and destruction of oneself. Arizona For her birthday, I took my girl, Katie, to Arizona so we could stay with some friends of hers and spend a few weeks partying and getting crazy and stuff before heading back to school for the year. We drove up in my dad's car. It's a really old Ford make, and it's pretty beat up. The road there was bumpy and long. Our relationship seemed the strongest on the road. We were really in love. That was the first time I realized that. I had never truly been in love before. We were about halfway there when we realized we were going to run out of gas long before the nearest petrol pump. Katie's head was out of the window, sunglasses on in the blistering heat outside. Nothing but the wild desert landscape to be seen in all directions. We became frantic. We hadn't seen another car on the road in almost an hour. What if we broke down here, in the middle of the desert, with no food or water, with no one out there to find us? I sped up slightly, driven by these fears. It was then that we came across a gas station, smack bang in the middle of nowhere, in dry, empty nowhere. It was an old worn down servo, long yellow grass blew in the breeze beneath it. Outside were two rusted gas pumps. At first we didn't know if it was occupied, it seemed so lifeless. But as we pulled up and saw the petrol stains in the dirt, we were convinced otherwise. Katie started refilling the car and I went inside to pay, and grabbed something to eat on the road. When I first went to open the door, it jammed. This perturbed me, so I looked up at the sign to check, and was reassured that the store was open, according to the torn sign that hung in between the dull yellow curtains at the door window. I pushed harder and harder with effort, and got into the shop. Inside it was totally abandoned and left to ruin. Complete aisles lay on the ground. The fridges were smashed and glass coated the floor. Despite the brightness outside, the interior of the gas station was dark and bitterly cold. Then there came, from behind me, 
this quiet weeping, like a child's. I felt my heart race. It was coming from the back room. I stepped over the smashed glass and twisted metal remnants on the floor, over where the patches of grass had grown through. I ran my hand along the wall and felt the crisscross of ivy beneath my fingers. It was overgrown. There came the crying again, and now I was facing the back room door. It was directly in front of me. I pushed the door open, and it creaked with rust in its joints. Inside there lay several wooden steps into the basement. It was pitch black, and the smell was horrific. The drip drop of water alerted me to the fact the basement was flooded. The water was up to my knees. Again, there came the crying and a small splash in the far corner of the basement. Hello? I called out. Is anyone there? I started approaching the corner. The smell was horrible, and the cold water eventually got to me. The sobbing was getting louder. In the corner, I swore I saw something move against the shadows. Hello? I called again. What's wrong? I finally reached the corner, still dark, and I had to bend down to avoid the pipes, which leaked down my back and trickled down my spine. The figure in front of me was very small and black, hunched over, sobbing quietly, head in its hands. Why are you down here? I whispered. Then, it stopped moving completely. It was totally still. All noise seemed to cease, but for the quiet dripping of a broken pipe somewhere behind me. I outstretched my arm to touch its tiny shoulder, but it then began to slowly turn in my direction, to look me eye to eye. As its face swiveled around to look into mine, I remember screaming and swinging my head up in recoil, cracking it on the pipes above. The face was white as a sheet, pale like a hideous moving mask. The eyes and mouth were completely black holes, huge and widening, even as I looked at them. They were so huge, they almost consumed its entire face. As I desperately tried to escape, it splashed towards me at rapid speed, uncurling its long, thin fingers. It was wailing now, staring into me with its huge black eyes. As I scrambled up the stairs with great difficulty, as I felt my legs begin to give way beneath me, it sprinted out of the water and up the stairs towards me. I slammed the door, flipped the lock, and tore out of the store and into the old ford. Katie began to laugh when she saw me, jeans wet, trembling with sweat soaking my chest, but I grabbed her and screamed at her to drive. Right, Katie. For about half an hour, I could barely tell her what happened in the store. She listened and gave me a look of sheer horror. When I finally gave in and told her everything, she pulled the car to the side of the road and began to cry herself. I asked her what was wrong. She said, I saw something while you were gone, when you were in the store. I was just putting the pump back when I saw this little girl and a man, her father I guess. The father stared at me with blank eyes and a hanging jaw. But the girl, oh god, the girl. She was staring straight at me grinning with this huge smile that stretched so far across her face. I couldn't see any hair on her, 
and her skin was so dark. Not dark like a colored girl, but dark like a shadow, and her smile just shone through the window. I convinced myself it was the trick of the eye, and looked away. When I looked back, they were gone. Then a little while later, you came back out. It was dusk by now. We had nowhere to stay. We had not traveled nearly as much as we hoped to that day, and the nearest hotel meant going past the gas station. So we just drove up from the roadside where we were, into the clearing a little way up where people camp sometimes. We had obviously come the night after a big party. There was broken glass everywhere. When we arrived, however, it was empty. After a while, I tried to reassure her that we were okay. I calmed her down, put my arms around her and we started to kiss. I moved to get closer to her, when she suddenly screamed like hell itself. It's her! It's her! She screeched, fumbling to start up the engine. I turned in time to witness a small, black face grinning literally ear to ear with only darkness inside. It was crawling into the car through my open window with its limbs splayed out like an insect. It had too many limbs, way too many long arms, the fingers feeling my face like antennae. We sped off, back down onto the road. Back on the road, nothing seemed right. There were no stars. That was what I noticed first. I was too shaken to think much of it. But there were no clouds that could be blotting them out. There was just the vast night sky, devoid of all light. Then, a few minutes after we had been driving forward, still sweating and breathing heavily, we passed the gas station. My heart skipped a beat. The gas station was at least a half an hour away in the opposite direction. All the lights were on and I saw the door sliding open. As we shot past it, Katie was in such hysterics she found it hard to keep driving. We stopped the car in the middle of the desolate road. I decided we should switch seats so that I could drive. She shuffled across from her seat to mine and I opened up the door to get out. As soon as I was outside, the foul stench of the basement overwhelmed me. I gagged, then vomited down the side of the car. It was then that I noticed the runner, a pale white thing, sprinting towards us through the fog, its limbs practically a blur. I could make out no face. How long had it been following us, running after us in the night? I got into the driver's seat as quickly as possible. We drove off again, not talking. Katie whispered and I silently prayed. Then we passed the gas station again. The door was open now. There were two figures standing at the door, waiting. As we forced ourselves on, we both became aware of a soft, barely audible weeping in the back seats. Neither of us dared turn around. Ignore it, I whispered. My trembling hand gripped the steering wheel. Katie was curled into the fetal position, holding her head in her hands. The wailing increased, becoming extremely loud, ear-piercing and horrific. Finally, I ordered myself to end it and looked behind me. For a split second, I thought it was a girl, in a white dress, looking back up at me. But she was gone as soon as she had appeared. I checked the seats carefully. There was nothing. In my tiredness and fear, I had completely lost track of the road. I drove on, and all through the night, Katie whimpered. 
I touched her once, but she screamed. I never tried again after that. The noises from the back seat started up again. We passed the gas station twice more. The people at the door were closer and clearer every time. The finest slither of red light had begun to settle on the horizon. It was still dark as hell, but at least I was able to see the road ahead of me now. Katie had been silent, face concealed under her hands for some time. I decided to check the time. So I turned on the radio. At first there was only static. Instead of time, or anything at all, the digital clock simply appeared black. I fiddled with the dial, trying to change the station. In between the static I found only one audible channel. It had a high-pitched buzz in the background. Rider's note, UVB-76. A man was muttering names and numbers under his breath. 29. Lucy. 30. Adam. 31. Katie. I switched back to static. I knew which name was next. When we got to Katie's friend's house, it was morning. It was overcast and everything had the smell of rain on it. Her friends weren't home. Katie's friend lived way out in the country, with no one else around in a mile. The grass was climbing the walls outside. How long have they been out? As soon as we were inside, Katie started whimpering again. I realized that while she had been silent, she was biting on her lip. Blood was trickling down her chin, and the skin around her mouth was torn and chewed through. She grabbed the newspaper and some masking tape off the table and began blocking out the windows. After the night's event, I didn't know whether I would be insane to join her or stop her. I simply watched. She covered the windows, jammed the door, and turned the lights off. For some time, it could have been minutes or hours, we sat silent in the dark. I offered to turn the television on. Katie said nothing. Sitting back and comatose, I turned the television on anyway. A grainy, black and white image flickered to life before us. A white face with empty eyes and an impossibly huge smile flashed up. The smile growing wider and wider, the longer we stared into it. There came the sound of weeping. From the television or in the house, I couldn't tell. We turned off the TV. It's been three whole days now. I haven't seen Katie at all today. She spends her time in the closet, crying. I once tore the door open and screamed at her. She screamed back, her face contorting into something grotesque and inhuman. I slammed it in her face. The phone rings often, a voice, my mother's, I believe, whispering under its breath. I can only catch snippets of what it says. Come back. You're always welcome to come back. Sometimes in the background, I hear quiet chuckling. I hang up without saying anything, usually. The bathroom is shining white. I hear the shower running, and will walk in to find nothing, nothing at all. Then, when I'm in the bathroom, I will hear the television flick back on. It always goes to the face. In the background, there are muttering voices now. I've called the police, twice. All I get is the whispering woman's voice. I called Katie's friends, too. Just as fruitlessly. There are knocks at the door a lot now. Through the newspaper. On the other side of the window I see their hands slam against the glass and slide down. 
They do this for hours on end sometimes. They press their eyes up to the glass, through the holes in the newspaper. At night we hear screaming from the guest room. I boarded it up. Sometimes I find tiny pieces of glass on the ground. A leak sprang up about a day ago in my room downstairs. Black spots of mold have appeared on the walls. There is a smell throughout the house, seeping in from the room. The odor of decay. I pray. I pray hopelessly and I wish. I swear to God. I wish that I had never gotten out of that car. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed all three tales. We had Lovecraftian-esque stylings for the first tale, with a uniquely crafted ending. A tale of humanity's corruption and what leads to creations of demons in our world, and the terrifying curse of a road trip gone wrong in so many, many ways. And I hope I had you looking over your shoulder for that one. Mates, just wanted to say you're all so lovely for listening, and if you get a chance, Swing on by my iTunes and leave a review. I know a lot of podcasters ask you to leave a review, so let me keep it light. Your review helps this show grow. Simple as that. If you do get stuck and are not sure how to do it, email me. I'll walk you through it. And lastly, swing on by my Patreon page. Every donation helps, and I promise to make your rewards personal to you. It's why I love doing what I do. Take it easy, mates. I'll catch you Friday for something unique. And as always, till next we meet.